0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, October eleventh, two thousand seventeen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This week, I participated in a five k. I did not win, unless you were measuring by heart. But before the race, they played the national anthem. I stood. I was already standing. It was no great sacrifice. I did shush the kids. Didn't make anyone cover their hearts. It's the right thing to do for the anthem. There were 3,000 people running. I didn't see anyone turning their back or raising an arm or taking a knee because there is an accepted behavior when the national anthem plays. If someone were to have taken a knee, I'll tell you what the thought that would have gone through my mind was. I would have rolled my eyes and I would have said, all right, this guy's being dramatic. This guy's overly influenced by football players. If the person had explained to me, oh, I'm doing it for Black Lives Matter, I would tell them, I'm behind your cause quite fully. Still, I stand for the anthem. Maybe there are other venues to make your point. But I understand what you're doing, and I really don't look down on him that much. That's his experience. That's what he wants to do or she wants to do. I offer these thoughts as a baseline. Here's where I stand on the anthem. Stand for the anthem. It's good civic and good civil behavior. It's very hard to decry how we're fraying and coming apart as Americans if there aren't one or two things we can all agree on, like uh, we should stand. America has problems. America's bad on some issues. Policing could be a lot better. Don't take it out on the anthem. Some other guys are going to be upset by, I don't know, taxes or government overreach or this executive order or that executive order. And, and they could start protesting too. And then we don't even have, you know, that one moment of community. I don't think anthem protests are the road to go down. My intensity on this issue, I give myself three stripes out of 13. But when Mike Pence stages a walkout where Trump advocates firing players, to me, that's a 12 out of 13 On the intensity scale, it's thrice or quadruple the civic wrong being perpetrated. And Americans, when polled, agree with me. (laughs) Stand for the anthem, we say. But also, Trump's totally wrong to call for the firing. But yesterday, I was on a TV show. And the premise was, is Trump winning on this issue? Since people agree that you should stand for the anthem. And I thought to myself, no, I think you should stand for the anthem. But if a player doesn't stand for the anthem, the question is, what do you do with him? For me, if it's an NFL player, I can understand where he's coming from. And it doesn't bother me at all. The question, is Trump winning? I did more than disagree with it. I got vehemently upset. Is he winning? Is he winning on this issue? To have been so forcefully engaged on this issue shows how much he's losing. He's the president who can't get anything done. So he saw an issue where people were on the side that he was on, broadly speaking, respect the flag and the anthem, and he jumped on that issue. And then he saw another issue, NFL ratings declining, like the ratings of baseball and the NBA were also declining, like the ratings of every TV show were in decline, and he jumped on that issue. And when I say every TV show, 78 TV shows came back for the fall season. 76 of them had ratings declines. Not The Bachelor and Jane the Virgin was flat. This whole thing is just an excuse for me to say Jane the Virgin was flat. Maybe that explains something. Winning... It's like saying uh, the Giants went 0-16 this year, but their end zone celebrations were great. Drum circles, a dog peeing, icky shuffle 2017. They won on that issue. Last year, the weird. this is a weird thing, though. Last year, ratings were in decline a little bit, and I kind of wondered about it, but it didn't bother me. It didn't hit me in the gut. In fact, I said, I wonder how much the off the field issues and head trauma are taking a toll or if it's just that the NFL is so popular, uh, Sunday Night Football being the most popular show in America for five years in a row, that things were about to peak, you know, a couple years ago, Starbucks closed a bunch of shops. Why? Because you always expand to your fullest point and then you, you scale back a little bit. But now, when I look at the overnights of the ratings, oh, Cowboys Packers did well, Vikings Bears did not. It's like a referendum on the presidency. But it's not. It's really not. This is just a trend that he has glommed onto because he has no skill in doing the actual job. Maybe I could one day get back to a time where I was taking a little bit of uh, satisfaction or intellectual stimulation in the decline of football, the game I most like to watch, because maybe when it was going down last year, I said to myself, hey, maybe this is a small sign that head trauma bothers people of conscience. And how could you get upset with that? But now the exact same trend, a ratings decline, in fact, a little less of a ratings decline, scans as confirmation that we live in a country of docile, easily led ninnies. But neither is true. None of that is true. Just that we're watching less football and everything. This one thing that I'm about to say, though, is true. Trump is going to have a field day next week. He is never going to have a more clear indication that America is with him. Why? Will he be vindicated? Because the Monday night game is Titans versus Colts. On the show today, I spiel about an issue that's become almost as divisive as football. Guns. What's next? The apple pie contra tem? But first, let's go to one of the most gun-loving states, Oklahoma. There, an emergency session of the legislature has been trying to plug gaps in the budget. They thought of a cigarette tax. Nope. Supreme Court ruled that out. Well, that's okay. Dutiful lawmakers will just get back to work at the Capitol. Uh Uh-oh, problem. Here's Andrea Gossard, project manager for a construction company. Uh, We'll actually be establishing the new power to the building. So it's going to require a little bit of help from all the occupants because we're actually going to shut down the building power for an entire week. Oklahoma, not okay. But what's underlying all this need to rewire? the Oklahoma government, up next. Oklahoma seems like a nice place. I know how to spell it because I was in the musical in high school. Its motto, labor, omnia, vincent, or vincent, depending on how you pronounce your Latin. And it means labor will conquer all. But that's not true. If you look at the social safety net in Oklahoma, things are not going well. Russ Cobb has reported on it for The Guardian in an article titled, Oklahoma isn't working. Can anyone fix this failing American state? Hello, Russ. How are you?
0: I'm great, Mike. How are you?
1: Good. Give me your Oklahoma bona fides.
0: I am an Okie, a self-proclaimed Okie. I know sometimes that's considered a little derisive,
1: but you could you could say it. I can't.
0: It, it, it's one of those terms, right? That oh. uh, depending on on who you who says it and in what context, could it, they could be fighting words. Mm-hmm. I go back two or three generations, uh, almost all the way to statehood, 1907. As I've moved away, I actually haven't lived there in probably 25 years. But as I've moved away and observed it from afar, I've become more and more concerned and more and more perplexed by how the state just seems to be going off a cliff.
1: Yeah. So we have some uh, statistics here. Uh, This is a livability survey, and I think they might be a couple years old. But in terms of population growth, 12.9%, which means it's growing. It's, uh, It's right there in the middle. Unemployment's pretty low, as of 2014, it was four and a half percent. Now it's even lower. So it's lower than the national average. The poverty rate's very high. The life expectancy isn't good. But then you read surveys, um, subjective surveys that name Oklahoma City is the most livable city. So this seems like a mixed picture, but in your viewing of the picture, it's not very mixed.
0: Well, depending on where you live, if you lived in Oklahoma City and you lived, you went downtown and you would see this thriving downtown that did not exist 20 years ago, maybe go to a Thunder game and sit there with uh, some of the richest people in the world. We're missing, our sort of middle class, upper middle class people are missing the story. Uh, Oklahoma is absolutely failing. I mean, it's it's not even an argument, really. I mean, even the, the finance director, who's a die in the wool Republican, said our our, our finances are pathetic. They can't put together a budget. They've had uh, revenue failures for two years in a row. Teachers are, are moving out of the state for places like the, you know, the glorious paradise of Arkansas, <laughs> you know, for jobs. So the question is, why does half the population not see it? And why is nothing being done about it?
1: Okay, so is it a question of the haves and the have-nots and the haves are doing pretty well?
0: Not only are the haves doing well, they're they're becoming increasingly isolated from the have not. So most people that I grew up with in Tulsa and I stay friends with would not even consider sending their children to a public school. So the private schools are sort of in a world of, of their own. People send their, their kids there. They don't even consider sending them to the public schools because they're you know, we have a teacher shortage buses. Some of the buses aren't arriving. It's just a disaster scene with the with the public schools.
1: Yeah, the, your story starts with a teacher has to panhandle for school supplies?
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's a this teacher. She was, a, I believe, a second grade or third grade teacher. The public school teachers get no money for supplies, and they haven't had a raise in At least four or five years, the teacher pay has declined relative to other teachers. Education cutbacks have been by far the most severe anywhere in the United States. So, yeah, she just decided to, I guess I'll go panhandle for for money to buy some school supplies.
1: And in fact, about 100 of the 500 school districts uh, have gone to four days a week. Just because they don't want to yeah. pay for five, and the teacher of the year, the Oklahoma reigning teacher of the year, calls teaching in Oklahoma. I think a dysfunctional relationship. It's pretty dire.
0: Yes, and then he uh, then he left. Uh, you know, he had to sort of set, wrote an op-ed for the Daily Oklahoman and said, uh, you know, as much as I would love to stay in Oklahoma, I love this state. I, I can't. I just cannot afford to raise a family. Moved to Texas. Got an automatic raise. Was raving about the wonderful. Things of public education in Texas. And this is where I really think that something has truly gone off the rails when you're praising the public sector in Texas. <laughs> you know, like That's not really generally uh, held up as a model of a well-functioning public sector.
1: Well, it strikes me that in some ways it is, and in some ways it isn't. I mean, Rick Perry was not an unpopular governor. And uh, Governor Abbott there also is popular. And one of the things that he does is he knows that even though both those guys are quite conservative, he knows that there are certain services that people expect. Whereas Governor Mary Fallon and a little like Sam, Sam Brownback of Kansas seem to have an entirely different theory of the case.
0: That's right. I think, I, think, I think you're onto something there. I mean, there's and Brownback basically did what Oklahoma has been doing for about five years in about five months, and it blew up in his face, and so he had to retreat, and the Kansas experiment uh, was largely considered a failure, and then, you know, Republicans, I believe, even voted to raise taxes, which is uh, kind of interesting. Um, In Oklahoma, yeah, Fallon, you know, she would blame it on the fickleness of the oil revenue, right? She would say, well, I, you know, just like other Republican governors, I believe in public education, and I want to fund, you know, the essential public services, But we just can't do it because a big portion of our budget is dependent on on revenue from from oil. Well, of course, they only have themselves to blame for that because they have consistently gutted the taxes that come from from minerals, right, from extracting minerals from from the state. That has been a big part of their agenda over the past few
1: years. Right. So to be clear oil revenue, the companies extracting oil are making plenty of revenue. Things are good for the oil industry in Oklahoma, especially when you add shale, just in terms of profit. The problem isn't the industry. The problem is what tax rate the industry is operating under. So if you don't take any taxes from this very rich industry, you could blame the industry for not giving you enough taxes, but it's just the percentage that you're affixing to their profits.
0: Exactly. They get charged a gross production tax on what they extract. And it used to be 7%. It's down to 2% now. And this is another paradox, is that Oklahoma actually is at the heart of the biggest oil bonanza right now because of shale and because of horizontal drilling. There's huge plays in South and Central Oklahoma that oil companies are flocking to. And The public basically gets one shot at this, right? The way drilling works is that when you first drill a well, the vast majority of what you're going to extract comes in the first year of production. And so what Oklahoma, though, has done, because it's in the pockets of the oil industry, has reversed that. So they've said, okay, you're going to pay lower gross production taxes on the first year and then pay higher later. Well, most of the oil is coming in that first year. And so it's no surprise that the revenues from oil and gas have gone way down.
1: And if you want to contrast it with a state that's, you know, not seen as liberal and uh, tax and spend, North Dakota, right? If you do a side-by-side comparison, I found out that Oklahoma's tax revenue is one or as low as 1%, whereas North Dakota's... Oil revenue or their tax rate is 11.5%. And when, especially at a time when, and this is not now, but a couple of years ago, when oil was a hundred bucks a barrel, there was less spending per student in Oklahoma. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I know it's it's incredible, right? I mean, even when we lived through that little oil bonanza, where oil was so high, there was still education cutbacks. I mean, it's um, and and exactly, I think North Dakota is interesting because you might think like everything else in American politics, so this is an issue of liberal versus conservative and Republican versus Democrat, but North Dakota is a
1: In uh, places though, like the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming, these are low tax states, but they also, they're very small states in population and they're, they're homogeneous. So they have a sense of community because they think of uh, Dakotans as Dakotans and it doesn't bother them to have enough funding so that people can, you know, have a decent enough education. Sometimes in places that are low tax places, uh, there's either a racial component or an us or them component, or some people, the haves don't see the have-nots as kind of being in their tribe. Is that what's going on in Oklahoma? I know it has a large Native American population. Why is it that the wealthier people just don't see the suffering of their fellow Oklahomans?
0: That's a really good question. I do think that there is a sense that other people are suffering and they sort of deserve it. Now, Obviously, a lot of that has a a racial component. Um, The Native American question is really interesting. It's very complex. Native tribes in Oklahoma are actually doing better than their counterparts elsewhere. They, In fact, the Cherokee Nation itself decided to donate money to the state's education fund. (laughs) That's how bad things have gotten. And then there's an incredible divisions also with um, Latino immigration is relatively new to Oklahoma, and it's sort of boomed in the past 20 years. So yeah, I think a lot of that is is tribal. I think you're you're onto something there.
1: So I guess an optimist uh, would say, or maybe a realist would say, but look, there are consequences to this, like there were in Kansas with Sam Brownback being so unpopular, he essentially left the jobs to take a posting with the Trump administration. What we saw in Kansas wasn't Democrats doing better but it was a moderation of the Republican party it was you know there'd be yeah. the, there'd, they'd be the brownback republicans and then there'd be the practical republicans who want to pass a budget that actually works for the people could something like that go on in Oklahoma
0: Right um no i i no and that's what's so frustrating is the governor called a special session just recently they can't agree on even raising the tax for cigarettes. The other thing we haven't even really discussed is what they think is going to happen is that God's going to do something. Because we haven't discussed, like, the importance of fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, Mary Fallon, when things started to look really bad last fall, she said, well, we'll just call for a statewide day of prayer.
1: The uh, the breakdown of the House of Representatives in Oklahoma is 72 Republican, 28 Democrat. And in the upper house, it's 39 Republican, 7 Democrat. So maybe day of prayer is all they can hope for. <laughs>
0: That and demography. right? I mean, demographic change is happening. I mean, demography is a better hope than prayer
1: for Oklahoma. Russell Cobb is associate professor in modern languages and cultural studies at the University of Alberta. And uh, I'm told he's working on a book that might be titled, You Dumb Okie, Race, Class and Lies in Flyover Country. Thanks, Russ. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Yesterday, we played a little Wayne LaPierre NRA head from Face the Nation, telling us that laws can affect morality, but a bullet can affect mortality. Today, we bring on another pro-gun voice. This one also belongs to a gun victim, Steve Scalise, representative of Louisiana, shot while playing baseball with congressional Republicans. That really changes a man, but apparently in this case, not on his firearm stance. When asked on Meet the Press, well, what about a gun registry? Here was his by now familiar answer. I think it's dangerous for the concept that the federal government would have some kind of list of who has guns and what they have, Uh, because you've seen that, by the way, in totalitarian countries. I've always heard that argument. A list would make us vulnerable to government takeover. And it's usually derided as wild-eyed. You really think with your home arsenal, as impressive as it is, that you stand a chance against the uh, Army's 3rd Armored Brigade combat team rolling its town on M1 Abrams tanks? You do. But actually, I started thinking about this. You know, totalitarian governments make you register guns. That's not the only silly thing about the argument. Totalitarian governments do make you register guns or take away your guns. The Nazi took away the guns. Uh Uh-huh. But you know who else makes you register your guns? Almost everyone else. Free governments. Governments much freer than the United States do this, in fact. Freedom House a veritable house of freedom, ranks every country in the world according to political rights and civil liberties. The U.S. is free. We do pretty well. We get an aggregate score of 90, but there are five countries with perfect scores. Finland, Iceland, Norway, San Marino, and Sweden. All of them make citizens register their guns. And then there are nine countries with either a 99 or a 98 rating. Canada, Netherlands, Australia, Barbados, Denmark, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, New Zealand, Uruguay, Not every gun has to be registered in Canada, but all the handguns do. And all those other countries are rated as having restrictive gun laws and not permissive gun laws. The difference between restrictive and permissive is that under restrictive gun laws, the default assumption is you got to show a reason why you want a gun. Under permissive gun laws, which the United States has, the government has to show a reason to deny you a gun. Currently in the world, There are very few countries with permissive gun laws. The United States, top among them, most permissive. Here now are its brethren nations. Albania, Austria, Chad, Congo, Honduras, Micronesia, Namibia, Nigeria, Pakistan, Senegal, Tanzania, Yemen, and Zambia. Many of those countries are not free. Albania, Zambia, partly free. Honduras just squeaks in as partly free. Senegal's free. Austria is freer than the United States. But Pakistan, this is a quasi-dictatorship. Nigeria, this is not trending well. We have associated ourselves with countries that are not free. The non-registration of guns has no effect on freedom. But you show me a really free country, and unless that really free country's name is Austria or the United States, they're registering their guns. Guns and ammo, in fact, did a ranking of what are the best countries for gun ownership. Finland was up there. Finland has the fourth highest rate of firearm ownership in the world, but training's required as it is in most places. Uh, Registrations were required. In 2009, 20 people were killed by guns in Finland. Every year since then, it's been fewer than 20. That's in Finland. That's not like per 100,000 or per week. That's in the whole country in a year. Granted, Finland's only a country of five and a half million people. It's only a little bigger than Alabama. Alabama had 973 firearm deaths in 2015. Most were suicides, almost half weren't though. Making you 20 times as likely to get shot and killed by an Alabaman than to get finished by a Finn. The second best country in the world, according to guns and ammo, Czech Republic. Here is, uh, this is a write-up of the rules in the Czech Republic by a pro-gun site. Czech Republic, an acquisition license is required to buy firearms and a separate license is required for each individual gun. Gun owners must declare a reason for ownership, such as hunting, target shooting, or collecting, but self-defense is not considered valid. All guns must be locked in the home. If the collection includes more than five guns, they must be stored in a safe space that is inspected and approved by local police. The Czech Republic was, in fact, ruled by autocrats as recently as three decades ago. And the word pistol comes from the Czech language. I would take that. I would take the Czech Republic's second best gun laws in the country. I would take their laws. I would take their gun homicide rate of 0.12 people per 100,000. Granted, the Czech Republic's only about the size of Georgia in terms of population. Uh, Georgia has a firearm death rate of 14 per 100,000. So... If you add the suicide rate and the homicide rate, you're 10 times as likely to get off in Georgia by a gun as the Czech Republic. So this is one case, gun policy, where I am okay with an exception to American exceptionalism. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Dan Schrader, rated by Freedom House as partly free. Gist was also produced by Mary Wilson. She gets uh, on political rights, a one on civil liberties, a two for a rating of free by Freedom House. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's rated by Freedom House as turn it up, dude. The gist, Freedom House. If you don't send us back the postcard, we'll send you the country, no questions asked. de And thanks for listening.